idea is 1% execution is 99% because ideas are, you know, ideas are cheap. It's the execution. Do you have the vision? Do you have the environment? Do you have the team to make it happen? Are you resilient enough to get a lot of no's and stick with it? That goes back to the founder market thing. Are you resourceful? It's about entrepreneurship is about resourcefulness, not resources. So yeah, I think having a great idea is a little bit overrated. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Dr. Nadia Batawi in with me today. Good doctor. How are you? Hello. You can call me Nadia. Thank you for having me, Gerald. I am really grateful for you taking time out of your busy schedule. We were talking before we started recording. She was like, yeah, I was just on Fox News the other day. And now she's hanging out with little old me and the Dreamcatcher family. So the listeners may not know you from Fox. They may not know you from some of the other big outlets. They might not know you from your weekly, is it weekly newsletter on LinkedIn? I have a weekly newsletter, yep. So I know that you help founders go to market. Mm -hmm. And I know there are a lot of people out there who think they want to be founders, but maybe they don't feel like they have something to sell. There's people out there who are trying to be founders, but what they're selling isn't working. And so I know you have deep expertise there. Can we start there and maybe how you got into go-to-market strategies and maybe some of the common things that you see that either work or don't work so that people can either do or not do them? Sure. That is a great question. This is like the multi-million dollar question. You know, I think starting with the problem is the way to go. You know, spend time to understand your target niche, your target customer, talk to them. Do what's called customer discovery. When you do the customer discovery, a lot of people, they go in trying to sell their solution. It's the other way around. You are trying to understand the real problem as they experience it in their own shoes, not your assumption about the problem and the great solution or technology that you have to solve it. I would start there. In fact, McKinsey, they had a report. And what they found is that companies that take time to understand the problem, to engage their customers, they use what's called problem-first design thinking. So they start with the problem, and then they design the solutions around it. They get their customers or potential customers involved in the process early and they keep them in the loop. It's not just a one time and done. And those companies, they outperform the S&P 500 by over 200% over a period of 10 years. 
it works. It's been done. We don't need to recreate the wheel. But what I see a lot, especially for people coming from academia, where they have a research that turned into a technology that could be going to market to solve a problem, is that they have a solution and then they go to the market trying to find a problem to solve. And we know that the number two reason for startup failure is the lack of product market fit. There is no market for the product that you have. So take your time. It may cost you, you know, a few thousand dollars a month or two, but it's worth the investment. Hmm. Now, some people would say, well, if I go ask the customer about their problem, then they won't see me as credible. You're doing a 360. You're trying to understand their pain points. Many times they don't even know they have a problem. And they have a pain, but they cannot clearly pinpoint what that pain is. And your job, if you're great at what you're doing, is to gain clarity around that pain point. Then educate them about it. And then you position yourself as a business person or, you know, as the guide they can go to to solve that problem. Then you take them through that journey of giving them steps how to solve that problem and ultimately paint the picture. What would the future be like? What is the transformation be like? What would life be like without that pain that they didn't even know it existed because it was there, it's uncomfortable, but they can't name it. And then you position yourself as the guide who can help them solve it with the solution that is your product or service that can bring value and get them through that transformation. Wow. Now that's fascinating because I think what you just described is what we call in the Six Sigma world a root cause analysis. And so we're looking for the thing that is actually causing the symptom. So the client's going to talk about symptoms. And mm-hmm. then we're going to go find out what is actually causing that. So if you have a cough, if you have a sneeze, this mm-hmm. is actually diagnosing the virus or the bacteria that's causing the person to have that experience. I found that most service providers don't actually consider themselves to be great interviewers or question askers. And so if that isn't a core skill set, is that something you would recommend that they cultivate and develop or? Absolutely. It's so critical that the funding agencies, the National Institute of Health, for example, which is the main body that sponsors research and development and tech in the healthcare field, they have a program called ICOL program that they won't pay for you to go out of the building and talk to potential customers, not only customers, but what's called stakeholders. A lot of people think, oh, I'm going to talk only to my end user. That's my customer. Not necessarily. Sometimes your end user is not your payer and you need to understand the ecosystem where the solution you're proposing to sell operating. What is the structure, the, the buying structure? Who is the influencer? Who could be the end user, the decision maker? And mapping those out and finding bottlenecks that can hinder your go-to-market is key. So in talking, doing this customer discovery, it's not just your end user. It's all the stakeholders involved. 
This is really interesting because I feel like most people consider this process like one way, like megaphone shouting. And what you're describing is more of a conversation. Is there, is there something that the service provider or the founder should do to kind of open up the dialogue? Because otherwise it's kind of like, oh, you're my adversary. And so we're kind of fighting and I, I don't want to tell you the stuff. Yeah, there is like a structure to it. Like back to had like a workshop a six-week workshop where we teach people how to, what kind of questions to ask? Where do I find the people to talk to? How do I approach them? How do I schedule, you know, time with them? How do I analyze the finding? Is there any trends in there? So there's definitely a process to that. Questions that I would recommend is open-ended questions. You don't want to lead with your solution whatsoever. In fact, you don't even mention your solution. You say, let's say, if I'm developing the solution in the urinary tract infections, a device to help with that, I would say something along, I'm trying to understand the field of urinary tract infections, and I would love your feedback on how you experienced, you know, deal with, so what kind of problems do you face in your day-to-day, you know, in this area, assuming you're talking to somebody involved in that area, so they would know something about it. So you start with open-ended questions and then you listen. Sometimes you don't give the top, you know, pain points that you think are there and you look for their body language. How painful is it for them? Preferably you want to do it in person. The alternatives to resume, not by phone because most of the communication is in the body language. So you can see the cues. And then you record it, whether you have asked them for permission, you know, to record the conversation that it's only for that particular project and don't share it anywhere online. And don't be afraid of pausing. Pause and listen. That's why we have two ears and one mouth. Listen more than you talk for those interviews. And there are like processes related questions. I also ask some sort of organizational related question to get a sense of if, for instance, they are doing a pilot of the solution that I'm proposing, not talking about solution, how is the process of approvals goes? Who is the decision maker? I always probe more questions whenever there is something that you're not clear about that relates possibly to your solution, but you want to dig deeper. The idea is to Pick like one narrow thing and go deeper rather than shallow and wider. And always, always ask for referrals for the next, you know, one or two people they would suggest to talk to. One problem I see a lot is a lot of people, they want to talk to their friends and family first to get, you know, to get some feedback. That's great. They want to see you win and they may tell you what you want to hear and you don't want to make your decisions based on, you know, skewed data. So friends and family are great to start with, to get referrals and to get the ball rolling, but I would take their feedback with a grain of salt. Mm. Their feedback with a grain of salt because they're not the ideal client. Now, I was at a business conference probably two months ago, and they said narrowing the avatar 
-hmm. is the absolute wrong thing to do now because of the way digital marketing has changed, specifically advertising on Facebook. I think they've adjusted the way that you can um, segment and target. And so early on, you mentioned knowing your avatar. So how, how do you feel about niching? And some people say you can't niche too much. Others say you, you got to be, it's, you know, kind of the flavor of the week. What, what's your perspective? And what have you, more importantly, what are you seeing working right now? That is a, a great question. It has two parts. So I would say, what is your, in the marketing, advertising, visibility word, you have three components. You have the visibility, you have the traffic, and the conversion. If people don't see you, they don't know you exist. If you have a great product, but you don't, you know, direct traffic to it, whether it's your startup, whether it's your solution, whether you have a product already on the market, and the third one is building that trust that helps with the conversion. So based on what is your goal, I wouldn't go only through one strategy. I, for instance, you need to increase your visibility. People need to know that you exist before you can niche down. You need to establish your authority as a founder or as a leader. So you build that trust. So before you have that, your product on the market, people already know, like, and trust you. So that will help with the conversion down the line. So I would say, depending on what stage you are at, combine the visibility, the activities that would help with the three elements, which is visibility and traffic and conversion. So if your goal, for instance, you already have the visibility through multi-channel, that's another mistake that I see a lot when in startup founders that will say, I'm going to focus only on one thing, but in the current, you know, world we live in, people are multi-channel. You can't just do only LinkedIn or only TikTok or only YouTube, whichever channel that you pick, but you need the system that feeds into each other and amplifies each other. Because mine, for instance, is through long-form content because that establishes me as a top authority, top leader in my field. So I chose the newsletters. That's why I go deeper. And within my newsletters, I also feed into all other activities that can help my business for business development, whether it's lives, whether it's audio events, and build your network before you need it. That's the, the other mistake that I see a lot. So whenever, whether it's your content strategy or your marketing or your branding, I think having clarity about your values, if when it comes to your brand or what type of content pillars that you're talking about, what type of Instead of niching down, you go after them. I flip the coin. I'm going to be the one attracting people to me rather than going after the niche. So that niche through, you know, thought leadership content, through having a system that amplifies each other, like, you know, newsletter, lives, audience, multi on multiple channels. 
I attract my nation instead of, and when you build that trust, that like, no, which is visibility, like, and trust, you attract instead of chase. Are there some key things you can do to kind of move people down that no like trust funnel? Like they saw your content great, but are there specific things that folks should be doing to get people to like them? Because I know some people are terrified that somebody yeah. like them on the internet. And then is going a step further, would, is there things that they should specifically be doing to get people to trust them? Yeah, I think understanding your the pain point of your customers. In, when you talk to people, the Windows customer discoveries for the target niche that you want to serve, that you want to solve their problem. My content pillars are around their pain points. I write about what's relevant to my niche. I write about their pain points, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and what they're doing. A lot of marketers, they say in the head part, the thinking part. But when you tap in through your content or through your business activities to the feeling part, that's when you connect at the deeper level. When you gain that, those data from those customer discoveries, you use the words that they are using to describe their pain, to describe how they feel about it into your messaging, whether it's through content, whether it's newsletter, whether it's email marketing and so on. When you are using their language to speak about their problems, about their pain, you connect at a deeper level. I get a lot of messages that say, oh my God, you, not, you, you wrote it better than I would have wrote it because it speaks to them. And when you get to that level, you are building trust. The other thing that a lot of people miss is the consistency. Staying in front of your you know, target niche, as a startup, chances are it's going to take you time to get your product to market. But staying at the forefront of their mind through your content, through your newsletter, through your, you know, being online or whichever activities or maybe meetings and so on, whenever your stuff are ready or they experience their problem, they know, oh, this is the person that I'm going to approach. Uh, to solve my problem. And so they're beginning to trust you because they feel like you understand them and you exactly. see the yeah. world through their eyes. I think everybody wants to be seen and heard and understood. So I think that's really valuable information. So when you think about startups, there's always patterns. Like what are some of the most common things you see people doing that leads to their enterprise failing? I think teams, a lot of people think it's my tech and how great it is and the product market to it. I think it's more about the team market fit. The team can make or break the start. It's not the money. Money is up there in terms of, you know, I think it's listed as the number one reason for starting failing from the CB Insight report. I can, you can, I can send you the link to share with you, the audience. And second one is the, uh, there is no market for the product that you think you're developing. So, which means you didn't do your work in terms of understanding the problem before you develop the solution. And one that is up there is the team market fit. Having, because the technology can change over time. 
the markets can change. Having the right team that can work together well to make the vision into reality is key. Sales is another one that a lot of startups struggle with, especially if they are technical founders. So, and when your team is still small, chances are you are the CEO is the salesperson. Whether you're selling, you know, your vision to recruit talent, whether you're selling, you know, to get money and to investors, whether you're selling your technology to customers. So you're selling on multiple levels. So sales skills and communication is key. And a lot of technical founders, we are into our technical jargon. So communication is another one. So I highly recommend for founders, whether technical or not, you know, hone in on your public speaking, hone in on your communication, surround yourself with a strong team that complements your skill set. You don't need to be the smartest person in the room. It should be the other way around. You should surround yourself with people smarter than you. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, AKA the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So I see a lot of folks who get into business and like, oh, I need money. I need people to fund me and I need them to fund me now. Is that a real thing? Like, do people just, is there a funding fairy that just shows up and puts money in businesses that don't have any proven product market fit or any clients or customers? As a founder, you need to put yourself in different shoes. If you're talking to your customer, put yourself in the shoes of the customer. Understand it from their point of view. Understand the problem from their point of view their pain points, their willingness to pay for a solution. Maybe they have a pain point, but they're not willing to pay for it. But you're in the business to solve a problem that people are willing to pay for. Hopefully, it's a growing problem so it can sustain your business. The same thing with funding. Whether you are an academic applying for a grant, your academic institution expects a 10x. When they give you, you know, space or you, you know, tools and, and money to start it because they expect a 10x. Whether it's in grants, it's the truth. The same thing with investors, they expect a 10x. So your job is to de-risk your company or your idea if you are early stage or through different ways. It could be an MVP in your early stage. It could be customer discovery. If you went out and talked to people, would that make up the ecosystem? Some form of their risking because you're not going with your assumption. So 
the DRS team doesn't need to be necessarily, you know, paying customers. It really, it's really tied to what stage you're at. Later on, it could be, you know, have you identified potential first-hand customers? Have you worked with them closely? What do you have letters of intent? It could be in life sciences, for example, and biotech. The life cycle of product development is so long, but if you have the right team, I've seen multi-million dollar companies, hundreds of millions. When they started, because they had a very strong team that has the expertise, they had relationships with potential partners in the futures and letters of intent and not a single die. But it shows that they showed that there is, you know, a market for it, that they have the know-how, they have the, you know, the plan for it and invested and they've done it before. It's not their first startup. So they have the experience to back what they want to do. And nowadays there are hundreds of millions of dollars in our evaluation. So the money part by itself, I think going to an investor to ask them for money to pay for your salary and you don't have, you know, a plan on how you're going to, you know, make the return. I think it's a little bit naive, to be honest. <laughs> People never want to hear that. They think their idea is so good and that's the, that's all that needs to happen. Is there, have you heard from funders on why an idea isn't enough? Idea is 1%, execution is 99%. Because ideas are, you know, ideas are cheap. It's the execution. Do you have the vision? Do you have the environment? Do you have the team to make it happen? Uh, are you resilient enough to get a lot of no's and stick with it? That goes back to the founder market thing. Mm. Are you resourceful? It's about entrepreneurship is about resourcefulness, not resources. So yeah, I think having a great idea is a little bit overrated. One percent. I'm gonna I'm gonna get a lot of heat for this one. Well, I mean, it's better to tell the people the truth than to have them believing in stardust and pixies. So what what you said though, resourcefulness is more important than resources. Did resources, I hear you right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, are they the same? Not really. Now, let me share an example with the audience. Let's say you have $10,000, okay? And you are resourceful. You can leverage your network. You can leverage maybe your knowledge. You can leverage your time. And that 10000 you can do more with that than somebody who has 100000 That's resourcefulness. Maybe in terms of resources, the other person has more money, but you're more resourceful because you know that it's not just the money. It's your knowledge. It's your time. It's your relationships. A lot of people underestimate the power of relationships and going deep on building those relationships. A lot of people are are after vanity metrics, followers, impressions, this and that. It does not. It may help with visibility, but take time to build deeper relationships and be a giver. Giving works. It really does. Whenever you elevate somebody, maybe they're not going to be helpful directly to you right now. But when the time comes 
and you'll approach them if you are building the right relationships and say, hey, I may need help with that. That network creates a ripple effect. It creates an amplifying effect. It sounds like you're telling folks not to be transactional, but to actually build a real relationship. Don't. Don't be transactional. Think about long-term. Build relationships with the long-term in mind. Meaning that it's not that transactional aspect. If you can help someone and you know you're not expecting any returns, even if that person directly doesn't, you know, reciprocate, that karma, that positive energy that you put out there in the universe, it really works. I know I sound may sound philosophical here uh, from a technical person, but the universe is about energy. When you put in positive energy out in the universe, it comes back in, in multiples. I think so many folks are focused early on in business and figuring out how they can get as much as they can for as little as possible. I call it incorrect focus on efficiency. And I think there's a lot of wasteful activities in the beginning, but it's all learning for folks who are at that part of the process. Do you see folks who are trying to be resourceful or I guess trying to be efficient, but labeling it as being resourceful, but doing things that are to the detriment of the relationships or the resources that they're utilizing? I ask this question, whether it's an activity or, you know, process, does this get me closer to my long-term vision, my North Star? So maybe it's not, you know, if I have the option between two activities, one of them may give me like a shorter term boost, or it could be what I call the shiny objects. And there is a lot of them out there. And it's hard to focus on your big star, big north, you know, north star versus saying now so you can stay the course and focus on that long term. I would prioritize the long term ones. And it takes patience, it takes discipline to focus on, to kind of filter through what would be short-term transactional versus long-term. I always um, prioritize the long-term ones because you don't see the results right away, but it compounds over time and then it goes through an inflection point. Now, there are people out there who would say, well, it's great for the long-term, but I need something right now. And that's where resourcefulness comes in. And that's a problem. A lot of startups they will say, hey, I need revenue. I need to sustain. You know, the, the VC is drying out. Uh, chances are my runway is so short. Ask yourself, what am I good at that I can offer to the world that can generate that recurring revenue and still not take too much time of my, you know, distraction from my long-term project? And I've been through that myself. I've offered customer discovery workshops, paid uh, customer discovery workshops. I did consulting on the side. I also did like membership communities. So those are like ways that you can leverage your know-how. You can leverage other non-monetary stuff that can bring you, you know, recurrent revenue to sustain you through that like value of death, but without taking too much time. The valley of death is a technical term. 
for all of those out there. And it is the part where it's cash flow negative. But if you can make it through the valley of death, things can get mm-hmm. really good for you. Exactly. We live in a society where we're taught to go into debt to consume things, cars, for some mm-hmm. people, purses and shoes. And we don't actually do the debt when it comes to investing in ourselves outside of most people for student loans yep. and starting businesses. Do you have a perspective on whether people who go into debt to start businesses or to invest in themselves so that they can move further along or get advanced skills, if that actually works out for them or should we just figure out how to consume and just kind of be in this this bubble of consumerism that a lot of people experience during the holidays? Yeah, I think there are a lot of resources out there that you can tap into as a small business or a startup. Look into, and there are government agencies, the SBDC, the Small Business Development Center. They have small grants. They have consultants in different areas that you can tap into without, you know, maybe you pay a very small amount, but the return on their know-how is huge. There are also non-dilutive financing ways, again, through the government, depending on what field you are uh, at. If you're in life science or healthcare related, it could be the NIH. They have what's called the Small Business Innovation Research Grant. You don't give away equity in your company. And if you get those, you can even have a larger one, which is, I think, over a million dollars to go to market, which is the commercialization stage. So there are ways that you can get those grants in a non-dilutive way, meaning without giving away part of your company in return for that money. If you are in a hub zone, an underserved area, there are special grants for those. They encourage people to have businesses in those areas. So if you're close to a hub zone, H-U-B, it's called hub zones, maybe it's worth it to get, you know, your business registered in that area so you can get access to those. Other, there are other ways, you know, bootstrapping is another one. You know, crowdfunding is, is another one. I did a whole a newsletter about different ways of financing for early stage uh, startups. The idea is that you can de-risk as much as possible. Get to that next. We were talking about the island islands that you need to go through instead of a path. It's not a path. It's like islands and you need to hop from one island to another and in between you need to swim you sink or swim so your job is how do i get to the next island stop and along the way as you move along those island hopping you do de-risk your company before you get you know to whether it's angels or vcs early boss there's what's called a triple f the friends family and folks I don't know if your audience is familiar with that. If you're really, really early, you're at the idea stage, don't go through the triple F because it's very risky, especially, you know, if you don't have a clear path to get it to market or to get the return to people who invested on it. I hope that helps. It does. I I appreciate your your warning to folks because there are so many people out there who will raise money Mm -hmm. and kind of shrug their shoulder if it doesn't work 
thinking that it's okay to lose investor money, but they mm -hmm. don't realize what that does to their reputation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I covered the resources for early stage companies in one of my newsletters on LinkedIn. You can find my newsletter, my profile. And it come, one of them was specifically for ways to fund, depending on what stage you're at during your journey. So kind of as we wrap this one up, I love to ask every person that comes on this show, because we cover a lot of ground, what's the one thing you want listeners to take away from this episode? Oh, that's a big question. In what aspect? Because we covered quite a bit of ground. If this was the only soundbite that they heard from the episode, what would you think would be most impactful? I would say believe in your vision and have processes in place to make it happen. Surround yourself with the right people. And yeah, and do it for the right reasons. If you are, you know, money is a byproduct. If you have the different puzzle pieces together, money will come, but it's not the end goal in itself. It is not the end goal. I think so many people miss that part. They think that the money is going to magically solve all the problems, but it, it, it. Oh, there's so many examples of companies that had a lot of money, but for other reasons, it didn't work out. So money doesn't solve all problems. And this, I mean, it's just aligns perfectly with your commentary around resourcefulness, right? Mm -hmm. Having a bunch of money doesn't actually fix the problems of the business. You've got to be a solid operator and exactly. being able to operate with few mm -hmm. resources actually makes you a better business person because you can solve problems the way they need to be solved. Exactly. That reminds me of the James Clear. He has Atomic Habits, the book. You don't fall. You don't fall to your habit. You raise to your system. So have systems in place. That Maybe it's the other way. You don't fall to your habits. You fall to your systems. If you don't have systems in place to sustain you, because motivation can get you started. You get through that, like, you know, hump of motivation. And then if you don't have the right team, the right systems in place, and then it drops, the reality hits when you get to market on you, you know, and then you go through that valley of death. Well, as you mentioned, that's when you are cash flow negative for a while. And your job is to survive that or shorten it as much as possible so you can get to the product market fit, but you should start with the team market fit. Well, Nadia, this was absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with the listeners. I know for anybody out there who's been thinking about it, um, they have some new tools in their toolkit that they can use to bridge the gap from where they are, probably as an employee or a service off service provider who's looking to bring a new product to market and how you can actually kind of flip the process instead of coming up with your thing and then giving it to the world, but going out, doing research, and then coming back and designing something that's actually a solution to exactly. the and we are, that people have. Yeah, and we are in an unprecedented time that we have the tools that are at a very, very low entry point, like AI and innovation that can help you do way more with less. So I encourage you to be resourceful. My newest uh, newsletter is called AI for Business Growth. How do you leverage AI to give you an edge in your business? 
process. How do you use it for processes? And I share one tip per week. I go deep instead of shallow, including strategies and tools and action items. Like I call it, I call it AI in action every week that I use myself that helps me do more with less. So if that's something helpful for you, you can find it on my LinkedIn page. So this wraps up the show, ladies and gentlemen. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.